Welcome back. You're watching Stockwatch with me, Zinati Kuma, tackling your stock-related questions this evening. Uh, Jean-Pierre Fastad from Protea Capital Management and uh, Graham Kerner from a Kerner Perspective. Don't forget to send those questions via SMS to 41392, email stockwatch at bdtv.co.za or tweet us at businessdaytv using the hashtag stockwatch. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Let's start off with uh, what could be a very big analyst for markets this week, and that is uh, the earnings season that kicks off on Friday. So could this be the time that we start to see an earnings recession? Because um, I was actually reading something that uh, analysts expect a profit for S&P 500 companies to have risen 4.1% in the third quarter from a year ago compared with a 11.1% increase expected at the start of July. JP? Yes, Zanati. So I do think that expectations are coming down for the earnings that will be released very soon in the next few weeks for the third quarter. And interestingly enough, that consensus is a bunch of sell-side analysts. Mm. And these days what sell-side analysts do is they don't necessarily independently build their own models and come to an earnings number. They take the guidance that the company gives them. And these companies, including companies like Apple, have given guidance, but they gave it a few months ago. Mm. And the world has changed. So uh, you can almost say that consensus is stale. So those numbers are probably too high. Okay. And just based on that, you will see that consensus numbers will come down. A lot of earnings will probably disappoint relative to those stale consensus numbers. And therefore, what you are predicting, Zanati, is probably going to come true. And that is that we're going to see a, a decrease in earnings, that is a, a decrease in expectations of earnings, and therefore, effectively, an earnings recession, yes. So does that mean, uh, Graham, from your side... Um uh, JP talks about how maybe these expectations by these analysts is maybe too high because uh, the, the, that guidance that they take their expectations from was only released like months ago. And of course, things have changed, maybe even gotten worse. Um, does this then drum the point that markets haven't fully priced in a recession? Uh, yeah, well, I think we've we've got a we've got an economic recession. A question mark over that, um, and then of course we've got we've got yeah, negative earnings growth. And I think, as Jean Pierre was saying, I think um, in large part the analyst body, I think they were in denial. We've been around the Kool Aid bowl for so long or the punch bowl for so long, we weren't really ready to give it up. So, I think you know some of us were saying earlier in the year that. We felt that the S&P 500, you know, uh, every, let's say aggregate earnings forecasts were too optimistic and were primed for perfection. Yeah. Uh, but of course, what's happening now is um, inflation is is eating into into margins. You've you've still got supply chain disruptions, so it's going to be it's going to be tough. But I think you know Jamie Dimon said it. Um, it's going to be. You know, some pretty scary things out there and a lot of people are expecting more weakness in, in markets. So I would agree 100% with Jean-Pierre. I think uh, the analyst body is behind the curve, um, but I think now suddenly everybody is panicking and saying, well, you know, we got it monumentally wrong. And, you know, it's not only equities. Um, a few months ago, maybe six months ago on the show, somebody asked me what's the, you know, what what's one of the most obvious risks in the market? And we said, well, you know, the bond market, because everybody believed that 
you know, the U.S. tenure was going to go to two and then it was just magically going to settle back yeah. in spite of the fact that the long run average when inflation's running at two is considerably higher. And if you, I mean, obviously it's been a bit of a bloodbath, particularly in the techs and the heavy, uh, you know, the higher rated, yeah. but you probably lost more on a, on a one-year view in, say, 20 or 30-year government paper in many economies than you would have lost in, in equities. But I think there's more pain to come as the world tries to sort of recalibrate, mm. you know, tighter monetary policy, uh, probably an economic recession. And then the fact that many industries, maybe, you know, the likes of oil and, you know, so on will be able will have a good time. But I think most sectors are going to battle to pass uh, their costs on to consumers and, and customers. JP, with everything said, does this mean now that we're still a long way away from capitulation in the market? So by definition, we, we don't know when markets will, will reach the bottom. No one yeah. rings a bell at the bottom of the market. No one holds up a sign to say, okay, guys, that was the bottom of the market. Even so though we wish. I can't factually, <laughs> uh, yes, we can wish, but I can't factually answer that. Yeah. But I would say is there's a lot of negativity already pricing to share prices. Yeah. And what I would also say is, for me, there's a difference between high quality companies with pricing power that can increase their prices at a rate above inflation versus speculative companies who only exist and, and have promised to do well in future based on cheap money and funding themselves through more equity issuance and more borrowing of money. Mm. And I do think that the prospects for those two types of businesses are quite different. I do think the high quality businesses are cheap now. So hopefully they are near the bottom. While the more speculative companies that we call high growth companies, but it's more growth on a women at prayer because uh, it's it's only adjusted numbers that show the growth, not the GARP numbers, the, the yeah. generally accepted accounting principle numbers. I think those have got further to fall. So if you put that all together, it means it's difficult to say what the indices are going to do. But I do think high quality companies are looking attractive now, while speculative companies still have some way to go. Yeah. Just looking at how the JC has performed today, we, say, we saw a red uh, all over, except for the financial 15. And I'm wondering what kind of story does that say where, it, you know, with the lingering risks, growth concerns, that today we did see a bloodbath, but investors found safety in the financial 15, Graham? I think it wasn't just the funny. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of the stocks we watch have actually been holding up quite well. And I think it, it, it talks to JP's point, although I think he was talking more globally, but I think especially in South Africa, we've seen some of these sort of long unloved under, you know, underinvested in um, small and mid cap companies actually being very, very solid with strong buying interest, um, you know, around ruling over, over the past while. So, you know, the consumer, you know, consumer stocks were, were looking better. Granted, the RAND helped a little bit, you yeah. know, the RAND back above 18, but, you know, banks were better, telecoms were were better, even listed property was only marginally weaker. Um, of course, the RAND helped the overall, but uh, we were down 0.3 of a percent, which is a whole lot better than uh, the early trade in the US and what, what Europe and Asia gave us. So I think um, particularly if you look at the, you know, the big banks, for example, I said to a colleague today, we've been waiting for a somewhat of a dislocation because obviously the risk off button was hit with a vengeance a little while ago. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been waiting for almost a dislocation where, where 
South African equities, good businesses, and I come back to reinforcing the point that JP made, you know, good businesses will weather the storms. And you want to use these 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 chaotic periods. And as he said, you know, it's not like we have a golden telephone on our desk and, you know, somebody rings and says, right, uh, you know, mid-cap A or or, uh, or Remgro or Fushini Group is bottoming. Um, yeah. But I, I, I sense that there's, there's actually quite a lot of support in some of the uh, some of the broader SA stocks that that were, let's be honest, you know, three months ago looking cheap, um, and uh, with the world looking a little bit more vulnerable, maybe people are starting to to accumulate. So, I I'm feeling a lot more comfortable with uh, with some of our core holdings, which uh, are shrugging this off. Because let's be honest, the the, the real volatility is in Naspas and the commodity stocks and, and the likes of Richmond. That's really really where the bulk of the volatility has come from, and the commodity cluster. You know, yeah. South African banks haven't done awfully much for quite some time, and the vol there is a hell of a lot lower than it is in the broader market. Yeah, all right. Quite an interesting question that's come through. Uh, will the Transnet strike benefit Grinrod, JP? Hmm. So Grinrod has got, got some port operations in South Africa, but they've got significant exposure to the port of Maputo. Yeah. So in a certain sense, if we do see that uh, exporters are redirecting their products to Maputo, uh, that could benefit Grenrod. The problem is to get to Maputo, you need to use the rail, and a part of that rail, as far as I know, is operated by Transnet, and that means you probably can't redirect that easily to Maputo. Mm. So net-net, it means they'll probably lose with some of their operations uh, in, uh, in and around the port of Durban, even though they might want to work again, getting stuff to them, to the, the siding, of the port might be difficult because of what's happening with Transnet and, and the rail part. And it's going to be difficult to switch to um, to Maputo. But I think longer term, after this strike, a lot of clients might say, well, if I have any choice between using Transnet or using a private operator like Grinrod, I would prefer to use Grinrod. So in the longer term, I do think there's a slight benefit to that. Yeah. Uh, just on that strike, Graham, I mean, how, what's your sentiment on, you know, the, some of our coal uh, iron ore counters uh, that have been coming out and saying, you know, that uh, if the strike continues for this however long, uh, then our production will be, will have to cut production. What's your sentiment on that? Um, is that a significant dip in terms of profits? Well, of course, um, and, and let's not forget if you're taking iron ore specifically, you know, the, the price got very, very hot, um, let's say about a year ago, nine months, memory is failing, but, um, and, you know, then it came back to earth with a, with a FUD, um, and the share prices obviously followed that. But, um, yeah, if we're going to have, you know, it doesn't have to be a very protracted strike, but if you lose, you know, two or three weeks of shipments, it's going to affect volumes, um, and although, you know, South African producers produce a reasonable amount, I don't think it's enough to, you know, cause a supply-demand disruption. So, mm. yeah, if this thing lasts for, uh, you know, three weeks or whatever, it's going to be, it's going to hurt the likes of Kumba quite significantly. A company that says, though, it's not affected by the strike is Teresa, as they've said that they've moved some of their logistics functions to trucks. 
um, instead of the uh, Transnet um, functions. So there's a question here. Teresa Chrome Business had good results. It came out with a Q4 um, production update today. Surely we could see good results from Merafe. Merafe appears cheap. Panel view. Let's start off with uh, Teresa. What did you think of those uh, numbers that came out today, JP? I didn't look at the Teresa numbers uh, in detail. I don't follow the mm. ferrochrome market uh, that closely. So yeah. even though the current prices are quite high for ferrochrome, if you go back longer term, it's been unbelievably volatile. And you see that in the share prices of Teresa and Marafe, where uh, when, share price, when ferrochrome prices are high, they mm. print money. When they are low, they lose money. And it's because of the volatility of the ferrochrome market, which makes it very difficult to then forecast what the ferment price is going to do in future, which keeps me on the sidelines. Okay. Um, Graham, are you on the sidelines or are you fully in? Well, I think, the, you know, I, I would echo what, what JP is saying. Um, you know, I think guys like us sort of say, well, you know, commodity stocks give and they take away. Um, question is, how much of your money do you have then through all cycles? And the, the answer to that question is probably not a hell of a lot. Um, but, you know, if we are staring down the barrel of a global recession, um, and I think, you know, China is probably the, the, the kingmaker in, in the global economy once their, you know, their big conference is over in a, in a fairly short space of time. Um, but I think the rest of the world is, is heading into, into a recession, and that doesn't augur well for commodities. So, you know, I think our view is that there are, there's good value out in, in the market. If you look in SA, we think there's quite a lot of value. Internationally, there's definitely, after the sell-off, a lot more value. You probably just need to be patient because, you know, uh, share prices tend to overshoot both ways. Uh, so, you know, in the, against the backdrop where you can get great businesses at really attractive valuations, you know, buying, uh, you know, ferrochrome stock or a, or a coal play or an iron ore play, um, because you think it's come off and that the commodity prices are going to run. It's just not the way we play. So we would much rather, particularly in this climate, go for high visibility, particularly because you're getting bargains. Uh, the panel's view on Sun International looks like they are refurbishing their premises, a new timeshare uh, marketing and big investments of, I think, 1.1 billion rand in this project. Can this be a good time to accumulate the share? For me, it looks positive for the future. I guess the question is maybe not that it looks positive, we all know, but I guess the question is how positive? Uh, Graham, would you agree? <laughs> you know, look, I think the, the, the problem is that, um, you know, I think that's why we've got the, the strikes going on at the moment. The offers are, are well below what is already an elevated inflation number. Um, and households are battling. And unfortunately, you know, Sun International, we can talk about, you know, uh, Sun City's, you know, refurb and timeshare and, and so on. But ultimately, Sun International makes its money principally from from the gaming business. And that's that's discretionary spend in large part. So I think it, it's looking as though it's on a much stronger footing now. But my sense is it's not going to do much from an operational point of view for a while because, you um, the average sort of, let's say, target market of the gaming business is, uh, is probably going to experience quite a lot of disposable income pressure before things get better. Hmm. Um, JP, do you think maybe it's too soon for us to forecast what the prospects for Sun International could be maybe before the December holiday season? 
Um, sure. I think the Sun International management would know. They would know what their bookings look like for yeah. the different resorts. Uh, but we on the outside don't know what their December might look like. Uh, I do think uh, they'll probably have a good December. I think a lot of South African households have been cooped up with lockdowns and looking forward to getting out, getting away. So uh, it might be a reasonable December. But further out, I think this inflation issue and the pressure on the consumer that Graham also alluded to is a real problem for them. Even though most of the money in, in any gambling establishment, it's a bit of, of the 80-20 principle, if not the 90-10 principle, where 10% of your MVPs, your most valuable players, actually uh, account for 90% of the gambling. Mm. Um, so it's actually quite concentrated. And, and quite often those are either uh, international visitors or they are entrepreneurs. And at yeah. the moment, we know we don't have a lot of international visitors and entrepreneurs are under pressure because of the state of the economy. So I do think that going into 2023, that couldn't have a negative effect on, on gambling companies. All right. We have a question here on Subvest. What is the panel's view on Subvest, uh, Graham? I haven't truthfully looked at the NAV for a while. Um, you know, it's obviously the, the unlisted portion is quite significant. So you've kind of got to believe uh, management's uh, valuation there. Uh, from what I can see, like the, the bulk of the of the uh, let's call them the, the the private equity investment stroke investment companies you know probably trading at about a 30 percent discount to to nav um yeah so on that basis it, it looks good i think it's well run it's got some good assets um but you know there are lots of other um investments like african rainbow capital and uh ethos to name just two that offer you you know as good if not more exciting um, and probably more diversified um, private equity opportunities. So, you know, what I'm saying is I think it's, mm. it's been well run for quite a long time. It's obviously very, very liquid, um, looking cheap, but I think there are lots that you could put into that sort of category that I would probably, in my ignorance, rather go for. It's had a phenomenal run. I see that share price um, really, really uh, on uh, quite an upward trajectory. JP, do you have any sentiments on Subvest? Very much similar to Graham. I do think that Chris Seabrook, the CEO and, and longtime capital allocator of Subvest, has done a great job. If you look at the compound annual growth rate at which the, the net asset value of Subvest has grown over the decades. Um, but the liquidity is a problem. It's very difficult to, to get your hands on some shares. And over time, if they continue to grow, they have at this higher rate, that problem will solve itself because the shares will become more and more expensive. So a lesser number of shares will be a greater value of trade. So, uh, so they must just continue on the road they're on and then the liquidity will sort itself out. All right. Just going back to banking, um, uh, there's a question. What is the share price outlook for first rand over the next six to 12 months? Is it likely to reach 70 rand? Graham? I would say yes. Um, but again, you know, that, that's sort of with my um, my lens that South Africa doesn't slip on a banana peel. We don't, you know, we don't have an apocalyptic scenario because, you know, the reality of it is um, first round from an execution point of view has been the pick of the banks for quite some time. You know, it wasn't very long ago. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, it was above 70 and it wasn't expensive there. Um, so I think all the South African big, big banks are looking uh, cheap. I think the dividend yields are, are good. Um, you've seen earnings 
or you know, the income statements get rebuilt. And in fact, you saw uh, First Rand declaring a special because they they're of the view they've got more than enough capital. And um, you know, when when banks have got 13, 14, 15 percent tier one um, capital ratios, you know, there's quite a lot of of of, of headroom. So I think the yields are quite quite steady. Um, and I think they've managed to navigate a difficult period because let's be honest, the last, you know, not only the two years since COVID, but longer, longer back than that, they've had to really uh, manage very, very challenging conditions. So, yes, I think the short answer is um, if you ask me, is the next 10 Rand up or down um, or do I think it'll hit 70 uh, before it hits 50? I would say yes, I, I, I would think so, because it is a a really great franchise and I think it's firing on all cylinders at the moment. All right. Some companies are paying special dividends, some aren't paying dividends and uh, there's actually uh, a grievance here against uh, Fortress. Uh, can I comment on uh, the abysmal performance of Fortress which is now lower than it was in 2007 and did not pay a half year dividend? Are you as disappointed JP? Yeah, I think disappointment is one word one can use. I think it's it's sort of fascinating to see this fight going on effectively between two different classes of shareholders, the Fortress A and the Fortress B shareholders. And the fact that their rights are prescribed in the company's MOI, Memorandum of Incorporation, and that the management are taking a certain interpretation of those MOI restrictions and uh, and that one can get to certain numbers of certain values of dividends that might be declared or not, depending on your accounting policy, yeah. including your accounting policy of what to do with NEPI Rock Castle uh, or, or NEPI shares, um, share dividends that Fortress would get, and how do you accrue for them, on which date? And that makes a difference whether they are then within the distributable income definition of Fortress or not. And that then determines whether Fortress could pay a dividend according to the MOI or not. So they're sort of like intricacies inside of intricacies happening at the moment. Mm. I do think that over time it must sort itself out. It sounds like the management wants to sort it out by collapsing the dual share structure into one. The shareholders themselves between the A and the B uh, structure might have different views. So uh, for me, again, it's one of those I'm on the sideline. I've got my, uh, my popcorn. I'm watching it. It's fascinating. <laughs> um, but I'm not getting involved because the longer this fight takes, uh, keeps on, the longer the time that one doesn't get a dividend, yeah. the company effectively pays tax, which is a leakage, and that's no fun. That doesn't create value for anyone. Uh, all right. Talking about value, uh, is the five-year retail bond at 11.25% a good investment, and how safe is the investment? Graham? Well, let's start with how safe it is. So, you know, uh, the theory is you don't get a lower risk than the sovereign paper in a country. Um, you know, we've sort of over the, the last few years said we would often rather hold corporate paper than government paper um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think the South African, South African bonds, um, all things being equal, even in our volatile environment, I think are, are secure. And the yield is good. You know, 11.25 is, uh, is a very, very attractive rate relative to maybe seven on, on cash. Um, yeah, so I, I would say it, it is good. Just remember the one thing, though, is those retail bonds, you, you locked into them. So, you know, if you take a five-year investment, you, 
you know, opportunities, you know, once in a lifetime opportunities come along and you're sitting getting a good yield, but not a, you're not able to take advantage. So that's, I think, the thing that you just want to keep in the back of your mind. Maybe mm. as an alternative, finding a, a bond fund that has got, you know, reasonably good uh, duration will give you yields probably not too far from that. And you will have the liquidity side rather play there um, than, than maybe buying the retail bond. But it's it's a good yield. There's no no arguing that. All right. Well, let's get into your stock picks, gentlemen. JP, what will it be today? I'm picking a company listed in the U.S. called Cop Art. It's a company that operates online auctions for salvaged vehicles. Now, a salvaged vehicle is normally a car that has been in an accident, and the insurer decides to write it off and rather pays out the insured cash. But then the insurer sits with that vehicle. What must they do with a broken vehicle? Yeah. And they then use a company like Cop Art to auction the vehicle to dismantlers, people who then effectively break the car down into its parts and sell the parts. Uh, it is one of the biggest uh, of these online auction sites in the world. It is growing very nicely. And the value of these salvage vehicles are just getting more and more expensive. Because cars have got more sensors and more uh, uh, very expensive parts in them. So more and more insurers are choosing rather to pay out cash rather than uh, fixing cars. And that means that there's both volume growth and price growth for cop art. Uh, and it's a great business with a lot of pricing power. And that's why it's my stock pick tonight. All right. Graham, what are you hanging your hat on today? Well, firstly, if I can just say, that's sort of a sum of the parts kind of thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for a, a Canadian uh, company. It's got a it's got a, a, a New York listing as well. It's uh, Brookfield Renewable Corporation. Um, they they've got around 23 gigawatts of um, of renewable energy capacity, uh, generating capacity. A lot of it's in hydro, but they've also got a phenomenal pipeline. So, you know, although they only produce 70% of what Eskom's capacity is, um, they've got an incredible pipeline. Um, I think the world is, is waking up to the fact that climate change is real and we probably should have taken it a little bit more seriously. You've got a lot of companies and governments who've now committed to, to emission uh, targets and carbon targets. And uh, we just think it, it's obviously a, a longer-term play, but the only way we're going to decarbonize the world is if we start decarbonizing the electricity grid. Um, it pays about a 4% dividend yield. The earnings are going to be patchy for the next while because there's obviously a J-curve in terms of the CapEx deployment. They've obviously, because of the nature of the business, got quite a lot of debt. Um, I don't see it as a massive risk because quite a bit of it is longer-term. And they're not getting it ridiculously cheaply. And it's about 4.7% average cost of debt. So, yeah, I think it's a nice way to play, you know, the alternative energy sector. And um, they're, they're an entity with, with real capacity and skill in that. And I think as companies are forced to, to sort of subscribe or, or, or honor their commitments, you're going to find them able to sell onto those companies at higher tariffs um, than than they would traditionally have got from the utilities. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your insights today and your analysis. Uh, That was JP Jean-Pierre Fester from Protea Capital Management and Graham Kerner from a Kerner Perspective. Julieta is back with Stopwatch tomorrow. Same time, same place. Have a good evening.